So it's uh, wonderful to see so many of you here today. Um, and uh, we actually have some people from, from as far flung as exotic Timmins today, and as far flung as exotic Texas today. So, it's, uh, so whether you're from way up north or uh, way down south or somewhere in the middle, it's uh, wonderful to have you here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, the, this month is the month where our, our grow groups start, and, um, and okay, there's lots of uh, <clears throat> echoing. Paul's working very hard on it, hard on it which is awesome. Um, and uh, our grow groups, for those of you who don't know, they're our primary means as a church for us to grow which is why they're called grow groups. So the whole point of the grow group is that sometimes it's easy to, you know, you know, to walk out of, the, out of the service on Sunday morning, half an hour later, and go, I don't remember the message. It was probably about Jesus, you know. But, but one of the great things about the grow groups is that, is that they're all sermon-based small groups. And so they take places in various houses around North Gore and Manatic and... Also Kentville, and, uh, and you meet and you talk about what you heard on Sunday. And why that's great is that you don't have to purchase anything, you don't have to read a book, you don't even have to prepare. In fact, you could probably turn up and not have heard the sermon and still have uh, a meaningful chat with the others in your grow group. So, so that's really our primary means of community and of growth. So... Here's the thing for you, is that if you're here at church thinking, I don't know many people, or I'd like to get to know more folks, or, you know, I'm feeling a bit lonely. Well, we have something established for you that you can easily plug into. It's always running. You can join halfway through a grow group season. You can join at the end of a grow group season. You can try a group for a season. Okay, so... I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, and for those of you who this is your first time, we're going through a series um, uh, about how to quit your flip-flopping, and so when I say flip-flopping, I mean um, you're up and down, and you're, you're emotionally high, and then you're emotionally low, and you're just never steady. How can we live a life which is steady? And it's simple, but it's not easy, but it's simple, and it's get your joy in Jesus, and so that, that is what I think is the theme of the book which we're going through, the book of Philippians. <coughs> so we're now officially over halfway through um, the book, which is excellent, and we will be finishing this series um, right before Advent, and then we'll go into an Advent series. So you can look ahead and uh, read ahead, but it's a really exciting, exciting book. And I've loved really getting stuck into it. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. But first of all, if if we can go onto the the flip-flopping slide, that would be great. Thank you. And then I'll have control after that. That's how I like it. No, I'm just kidding. But really, I do. It's the blue one with the flip-flops on it. Is it not there? You know what? It doesn't even matter because you got the Bibles yourself. So, I was uh, watching um, 
a video review of a smartphone. And last year, I know that Apple put out a smartphone. This is a smartphone, not the tripod, but the phone itself. This is a smartphone, if you're not sure what it is. And that's how to break one. That's how to get your attention as well. So, uh, good. So, this is a smartphone. And last year, uh, Apple put out an, an iPhone without a headphone jack, which means you can't plug in your headphones. And people around the world are throwing up their hands going, what on earth is the world coming to if I can't plug in my headphones? Now, of course, there are ways, mainly Bluetooth, but uh, there are ways around it, but it shocked people. And now, one year after that, there are more and more smartphones who are putting out their phones without headphone jacks. This is the way of the future. And I remember the first Palm Trio that I got. I don't know, maybe you're looking at me going, what on earth is a Palm Trio? But a Palm Trio is, it's kind of like a pre-smartphone smartphone. Okay? And I found it on eBay when I used to go on eBay. I don't anymore, but when I went on eBay, I found it and I put in my bid and I watched it and I bid and I watched it and I bid and in the end, I got it and it got sent to me from wherever it was, Toronto maybe, and it arrived. And the day it arrived, I was so excited. I loved how it looked. I loved how it was able to do all this stuff. And I loved that I could install various programs on it if I was really patient and I found the workarounds because, of course, then there weren't app stores, right? This is pre-app store. And, uh, and I could even phone people on it, right? That was... One of the exciting things is I could phone people on my smartphone, and it even had a cool hip holster, which meant it was ready to be used at a moment's notice. I was always prepared. And one of the coolest things about it is that it had a 0.3 megapixel camera. And with 0.3 megapixels, I could almost leave my real camera at home and just rely on it. It also had 23 megabytes, not only kilobytes, but megabytes of actual usable storage space, which was phenomenal. And if I wanted to, I could expand that with an SD card. So, and I always felt a certain thrill when I opened up my calendar on my Palm Trio, instead of having to flick through my old school physical paper organizer. In fact, that that physical organizer soon found its home on a shelf and in the end ended up in the garbage. Because why would I need a physical organizer when I have a handy-dandy palm trio with a calendar there on it? And I always felt a bit sad for those who you know, were still walking around with their physical organizers under their hands and still living in the past. And I felt a bit proud of myself that I, a pastor, was keeping up with the times. I was relevant. I felt sophisticated And uh, yeah, there wasn't any synchronization really at that time. There was no app store, there was no touch screen, but I didn't care because those things did not yet exist. And so with the viewpoint I had and the perspective I had at that time, I was perfectly content with my second-hand Palm Trio with its 23 megabytes of storage and 0.3 megapixel camera. Today, we're going to look at how in Jesus we can find a joy that brings a new viewpoint, new perspective that changes how we actually look at reality itself, that it so fundamentally overhauls your view that suddenly everything changes. This is what joy in Jesus brings. Philippians chapter 1, 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Okay, so verse 1 says this, Finally, my, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and is safe for you. And so we start this message with Paul hitting the same old drum that he's been hitting throughout the whole of the letter. Rejoice, have joy. And that means that I'm going to keep hitting the same drum that I've been hitting for the past few weeks. Rejoice, have joy. And I love it because Paul seems like he gets almost a bit self-conscious here. It's almost as if he can hear the eyes rolling as the Philippians hear him once again talking about that word rejoice. And so he, he, he preempts them. He knows that that's what, what's going to happen. So he preempts them and he says in effect, look, my hand is never going to get weary of writing that word rejoice. I'm never going to get weary of reminding you to rejoice. And it's such a good word and it's a word that we cannot get enough of. So Paul, with joyful abandon, splashes the colours of joy on the beige walls of the Philippians' minds and hearts. He says rejoice. He says rejoice. Finally, my, my, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He says I could keep going on all day. You know, to write these same things over and over again, it's no trouble for me, he says. And it's safe for you, he's saying. You don't have to be afraid of the word rejoice. It's not going to bite. It's safe for you. Now, I remember when I was younger that there was no online banking. There was no smartphones. There was no online banking. This is even pre-Palm Trio. This is going back. The only way I could find out my bank balance was to go to the ATM. And I was studying earth sciences at Cardiff University, and I was working in the kitchens there, earning three whole pounds an hour, which wasn't very much. And so every time I went up to the bank and I typed in my PIN, there was a certain amount of nervousness and anxiety. Would I have enough for my night out with my mates? Or sometimes, would I have enough for my week's food? Now, imagine if I'd gone up 
to that bank expecting to find 60 pounds, 60 whole pounds in the account, only for me to find that there was nothing in the account. In fact, there was, yeah, there was a big fat zero. In fact, it was worse than that. There was negative. And that's what happened to Paul. Let's look at verse 4. He says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And then he goes on. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul had lived his entire life assuming that his account at God's bank was full. He paid into it virtually every day of his life. In Paul's estimation, he was sitting on a pretty big fortune that he had at God's bank. And he listed all the different ways, he lists here in verse 4 and onwards, all the different ways that he thinks he has a pretty fat account with God's bank. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. He, he's, he's an Israelite, which is the correct ethnicity. Check. He's a Benjaminite or a Benjamite, which is the tribe in which the city of Jerusalem was built. So this is pretty prestigious. Check. He says a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's not just a Hebrew, but he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He follows the purest of the traditions. Check. He says he's a Pharisee, which we think is a negative word, but back then it was positive, And it meant that he followed the law and kept the rules Perfectly, sincerely, check. He was a persecutor of the church. Again, we shake our heads at that, but he was actually rubbing his chest thinking this is pretty good because what this meant is that he was protecting what he saw as the true faith from those who would threaten it. So check, he was actually going out on a limb to keep the faith pure. And then lastly, a perfect observer of the law, check. So with all of those checks, Paul assumed, wait for it, that he had a good checking account. But that was not actually the case, because his account was bare, just like Mother Hubbard. So what does this mean for us? Just that we're not that different from Paul. For some of us, we feel that our wallets are fat and healthy. For some of us, we can see the cartoon moths escaping from them as we open them up. But here's the issue, and here's Paul's issue and here's our issue. We're checking our checking account. We're typing in our PIN and trying to access our own resources. We're trusting in our own works for righteousness. And Paul's response to that, we can read in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul's saying that if we look at our bank balance, it's zero. But if we look at the balance that we have with Christ... It's massive. And so when Paul says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had accounted as loss, this isn't some kind of a a noble sacrifice. This This isn't him saying, Jesus, all this gain I have, I lay it down at the foot of the cross and I sacrifice it for you. This hurts me, this is painful, but I feel it's the right thing to do. This isn't what Paul's doing at all. It's no trouble at all for Paul to sacrifice this gain. In fact, it's no sacrifice at all because he's discovered that what he thought was gain is in fact worthless, that it's empty. 
that this vast sum he thought he, he could jump into like Scrooge McDuck, it's not there. It's just a big, empty vault. He has found out that works righteousness, that trying to get to God through his own good works, is an empty promise. He, he's realized that he's been conned. So this game that he talks about in verse 7 wasn't something he handed over to Jesus, like I said, like some kind of good Christian martyr. No, it was something that he could, he could joyfully hand over. It's, it's, it's like one of these folks, you know, when they go onto the Antiques Roadshow and they say, I've got this, and they're full of hope, and they think it's some ancient thing from some centuries earlier, and then they find out that it's been made in China the last year. You know, when that person walks off the Antiques Roadshow, they don't, with a heavy heart, throw that piece of last year's trash that they thought was worth something into the garbage. It's not hard for them to throw it into the garbage and walk away. It's easy because they've realized that it's worth nothing. The wall has been pulled from their eyes. You see, Paul's problem was with mathematics. He wasn't a good mathematician. He wasn't very good at counting. He counted all this stuff as gain. He he put all this stuff in his assets column. But he should have been putting it in his liabilities column. He should have been counting it as loss. So what changed? What helped him realize his mistake? Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8. And I'm going to read it from a translation which a guy called N.T. Wright wrote. And he said this. This is how he translates verse 8. I calculate everything as a loss because knowing King Jesus as my Lord is worth far more than everything else put together. I calculate everything as a loss because knowing King Jesus as my Lord is worth far more than everything else all put together. When I was younger, I remember playing with my sister's play oven. It was made of wood and it was painted white. And I remember we had these little fake bread rolls made of some kind of hardened salty clay or something like that. And I can still remember how they tasted and smelled. I really can. I think back and I know exactly what they look like. How they tasted. Yeah, we used to lick our fake bread rolls in Wales. And how they smelled. And... But as I got older, well, maybe even at the same time, I also understood that there were real bread rolls. And the experience of really biting into a good Thanksgiving hot bread roll fresh out of the oven is way cooler than licking a fake bread roll. Okay, they don't even compare. But until I experienced the true bread roll, I was content with my... Fake bread rolls. And until Paul met Jesus, he was content with his toy faith, with his fake faith, with righteousness through works, with trying really hard to please God, and then he would pat himself on the back when he thought he'd done a good job. That's what verse 5 through 7 is all about. It's a pat on his back. Have you ever seen a kid try to purchase something in a store? No, they pick out a massive bag of sweets then they walk over to the counter, somehow managing to carry it. Then they heave it onto the countertop. Probably an adult nearby them helps. And then they fish around in their pocket for money. And after a while, they triumphantly place a nickel on the countertop. What's wrong with this picture? 
Well, that child has no idea of the value of money. They realize it's an exchange, but they have no way of measuring the actual value of the item that they want to purchase. And they don't realize that that bag of sweets is worth way more than five cents. So Paul has been playing with his toy oven. Paul has been swaggering around like a toddler with a few cents in his pocket. And he thinks he can pay off God with this measly amount. But what happened when when Paul met Jesus, or when Jesus met Paul, was that Paul experienced true bread. Paul experienced the true cost of things. Paul finally knew the real value of things. And all those things that he'd been stacking up, like they were worth something, like they were valuable, he discovered that it was nothing more than monopoly money. This is why Paul could say, I calculate everything as a loss, because knowing King Jesus as my Lord is worth far more than everything else put together. He had his spiritual eyes opened to the true value of things. Jesus had shown him that his religiosity, his ethnicity, his hard work, his genetics, his works righteousness, Jesus had shown him that all this was monopoly money. It was not worth the paper it was was printed on. It It was counterfeit. It was fake bread rolls. And this is why Paul, in verse 2, sounds so angry. If you turn to verse 2, he says this, Look out for who? The dogs. Look out for who? The evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in this verse, Paul, if, Paul he kicks open the saloon door with both guns blazing. His blood is boiling, his, his eyelids are twitching with such anger and frustration. But who is it that Paul is so angry with? Because who, who, who Paul's talking to in verse 2 is he's talking about a bunch of Jewish Christians who try to insist that any non-Jew, any Gentile who became a Christian had to follow the Jewish law. So can you imagine if instead of baptism services... We had circumcision services. I don't think the turnout would be very much to those. But this is what it would still look like if these guys had their way. So you imagine if we had to obey the entire Jewish law in addition to trusting in Jesus Christ. And so these folks who tried to force the Jewish faith on these Christians, on these non-Jewish Christians, were called Judaizers. And they were actually going around after Paul, chasing around, going city to city. And wherever Paul would preach, where, where, wherever Paul would try to set up something, they would be there in the crowd whispering their lies. And they were sneaky about this. In fact, if we turn to, to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. Some so-called believers there, false ones really, were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and to take away the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So these people, these Judaizers, wanted to enslave everyone. Their their goal was to take away the freedom of the believer. And these Judaizers were still waving around their monopoly money, thinking it was real, and they wanted everyone to adopt a monopoly, a monopoly currency. 
They were still chewing on their make-believe bread. And Paul was saying, no, the reality is Jesus. So Paul, in this verse, he's he's rather brutal in his condemnation of these Judaizers. He He calls them dogs, which is a term that the Jews would call the unclean Gentiles. So he's saying, that's what you are. This is really offensive stuff. He calls them people who do evil, even though in their mind they were doing good. But he said, no, you have it wrong. You are evildoers. In their mind, they were on a clear mission from God himself that you would have gone to any lengths to fulfill it, which sounds a bit like how Paul used to be, pre-Christ. And he also called them those who mutilate the flesh. And of course, the reference here is to circumcision. But he uses this phrase, those who mutilate the the flesh, because he wants to offend them, because he wants to point out how absurd it is And, in fact, when he calls them flesh mutilators, Paul is comparing these people with members of a pagan cult who would slash themselves, who would cut themselves in some frenzy of worship of a false god. So he's saying, that's what you're like. He's saying that these people who've tasked themselves with keeping the faith pure are like a pack of filthy animals. He's laying on thick because he used to be there himself. He was one of those people that was so obsessed with keeping the Jewish faith pure and the race pure that he hounded the Christians up and down the country, arresting them, throwing them into prison and being complicit in their deaths. He used to be serious about this. And Paul is afraid that these Judaizers will water down the gospel message of freedom in Christ by enslaving everyone to a bunch of rules. He's afraid that, that people, that sincere Christians, that sincere people are going to trade in their faith righteousness, this true currency, for this monopoly currency of works righteousness. And isn't this true for us here? How often do we forget that our relationship with God is purely based on trusting in his kindness, in his mercy? in his grace. And how easy is it for us to start to create another checklist that we can wave in God's face, say, look what I've done, God, like some little petulant child trying to get his or her parents' attention. We do that. We love our checklist. We love to measure our righteousness. And when we trust in Christ, it's less easy to measure. And that's why in verse 3, Paul says that circumcision has no value because it's works righteousness. He says that, that physically altering your body, snipping off a bit here or a bit there, does nothing to change your heart. You don't send someone who needs heart surgery in for a nip and tuck. That's not how it works. In fact, if we turn to to the book of Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, Paul puts it even more clearly. He says this in Galatians 5 verse 6, for in Christ neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So he's saying you can be uncircumcised, you can be circumcised, it doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. Faith. So Paul is saying that circumcision is a non-issue. But faith is the true circumcision. 
So if we go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul stops talking about circumcision as a physical act, and he now starts talking about it as a spiritual reality. He says this in verse 3, For we are the circumcision. It's an, an, an identity. You and me, we who've trusted in Jesus, we are the true people of God. And what identifies us as the true people of God? If there's any verse from this passage, I would encourage you to memorize it's this. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship, there's three things, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is faith, righteousness, those three things. This is true righteousness, glorying in Christ. What an amazing thing to think about. Glorying in Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh. Because too often we glory in the flesh and we put no confidence in Christ Jesus. But Paul's saying, flip it around. And so I wonder, if you were totally honest, would this maybe describe you? Glorying in the flesh, in your own ability and putting no confidence in Christ Jesus. But what a beautiful option, what a beautiful alternative it is when we can glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. We can look at ourselves in the mirror, in the eye, and we can say, you are not trustworthy. You will only let me down. But then we can look past our reflection to Christ And say, thank you for what you have done. For winning me my salvation. I will glory in you. Everything changes at that moment. And I love verse 3 because if you look at it carefully, it shows how we as Christians have access to and we engage with all three members of the Trinity. It's one of these wonderful verses that has all of the Trinity in this little short space. It says that we worship by the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit and the Father. And we glory in Christ Jesus. So there we have the three members of the Trinity all represented. This is what faith working through love looks like. This is what Paul embraced as true faith. This is faith righteousness. This is what Paul was not willing to sacrifice or to give up. If Paul was a cowboy, he would be saying to the Judaizers, there, there ain't enough room in this town for the both of us. I worked hard on that accent. <laughs> but, but that's what he would be saying. There's the, you can't have both. You can't have faith righteousness and works righteousness. It's either one or the other. And Paul is saying, I'm choosing faith righteousness, trusting in Christ. So right at the start of this sermon, I, I told you how, um, about my palm trio, and I told you how pleased I was with it. And I think it was back in 2006 or something like that, maybe even earlier, um, this trio did everything that I wanted it to. But if you flash forward to early 2016, when I got my new smartphone here, with its touch screen, its massive memory, its access to thousands of apps on the Play Store, its fast speed, fast operating speed, do you think I would have gone back to the Palm Trio and said, this is sufficient? Not in a million years. Because the scripture says the old has passed away, I guess that works with technology as well. The new has come. And any of you who've traded in an old beater for a new truck, or a fixer-upper for a dream home, or a runabout for a luxury boat, any of you who've done those trades, you understand this feeling. You would never go back 
Why would you want to? It's ludicrous. So, in our grow groups this week, here are some of the questions that we're going to look at as groups. What kind of things, here's the first question, what kind of things are you tempted to put on your checklist to show God that you're worthy? What, here's another question. What is the difference between works righteousness and faith righteousness? Third question. Why is sincerity not enough for, for salvation? Why is it not enough to be sincere and to mean it? And how was Paul using the wrong measuring stick before he met Jesus? How is he using the wrong, the wrong measuring stick? How are people today still using the wrong measuring stick? In the process of pledging his life to follow Jesus, Paul discovered that his personal checking account was empty. He discovered that, in fact, he was in debt. All those things that he'd put in the assets column, he actually discovered that they were lost, that they were liabilities. But in the very moment that he discovered this this soul-shattering loss, he received the message that he'd been approved to a new checking account. One that was not in his name, but was in the name of Jesus Christ. He now had access to all that Jesus had earned for him. It was now his. This was Paul's fortune. This was Paul's inheritance. And this is, and you know, I think that Paul could say these words, which we read in the Psalms, Psalm 16, verse 6. I think Paul could have totally used this as to express his heart, where it says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And I think that he could have also echoed what's said in Psalm 73, verse 26, where it says, My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my inheritance. So how about you? Have you got the, the assurance that you have a beautiful inheritance? Are you convinced that God is your portion forever? Or are you still w- walking up to your checking account only to find out that you're in the negative again with your sins and your failures and your regrets. Because it doesn't have to be this way. Because the only way to quit your flip-flopping is to find your joy in Jesus. It's the only way. It's the only way that you can get a true perspective on reality. As Paul said in verse 1 of our passage today, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say this over and over again. I'm never going to tire of it, Paul says. This is the essence of faith righteousness, rejoicing in the Lord. And the essence of works righteousness is to keep trying hard yourself over and over again. So what would you prefer? Would you prefer a life of trying to please God in your own strength and continually failing? Or would you prefer a life of rejoicing in the Lord? You know, as I wrap up here today, What was it that kept Paul steady through his life full of trials and troubles? What was it that was the source of his relentless joy that kept flowing up, counting everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus? Paul knew he had nothing. Paul knew his hands were empty. His righteousness, his righteous works were lost. They were meaningless. They were worthless. And because his hands were empty... He could grasp hold of all that Christ had purchased 
for him. Because he'd released the fake bread rolls, he could grab hold of the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. Because he had his eyes opened, Paul could see that all these things that used to mean so much to him were in fact worthless. And all these things that made Paul Paul were only fit to be taken out to the side of the road and left there. Paul realized that trying to keep God's law in his own strength was a wasted effort. And therefore, because he realized this, he could throw himself onto the mercy of Jesus Christ. So here are some questions for you. This Thanksgiving, are you found in a fragile fortress of your own righteousness? Or are you found in Jesus, as it says in verse 9, and be found in him? So are you found in a fragile fortress of your own righteousness? Or are you found in Jesus? If if people were to look for you, where would they find you? Where is your hiding place? Where is your resting place? Where is home for you? Are you found in Jesus? Because it's only in Jesus that you will find freedom from the struggle of, of doing your best. Because you realize that Jesus has already done his best for you. And so it's as we settle into this glorious position of being found in Jesus that we can say in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So this Thanksgiving is the cry of your heart that I may know him. Because when we trust in Jesus, our perspective changes from trying to earn his favor to wanting to know him more. You don't have to earn favor, so you're free to focus on getting more acquainted with him. That I may press on to know him. That I may become more familiar with his voice and his ways. That I may enjoy Jesus' company more and more. That I may say there's no other place I'd rather be than to be with him. That I may know him. So are you found in Jesus? This thanksgiving is the cry of your heart that I may know him. Let me close with a verse from 1 Peter 3. Which says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfailing, that is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is what we have in Christ. That is the joy in Jesus that brings a new perspective.